Well, good morning, everyone. What a blessing to see everyone here this morning. If this is your first time at Renew, welcome. And if this is your hundredth time at Renew, you're welcome as well. My name is Richard Fuller, and it is my humble privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Pastor Dallas and Natalie are in Israel. So please be in prayer for them for a safe trip and also that they would receive from the Lord what he has for them uh, on this journey over to uh, Israel. If you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. We're going to be reading from Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. And it reads, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. And don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Let's pray. Father God, we just so humbly come before you uh, this morning. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill each person here and would just mightily fill this room, Father. We pray that your word would rest in our hearts and in our minds today, Father that we would be changed. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit that all that I say would be glorifying to you. We give you this time, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 verses 5 to 9 writes that we are to put to death 
the sinful earthly things lurking within us. And he then lists in these verses a number of vices and behaviors that as Christians we are to avoid. However, he didn't mention them all. As there are 124 sins that have been called out in the Bible. Now here are some of the sins the list includes. Blasphemy, idolatry, fornication, haters of God, lying, homosexuality, knowing to do good but not doing it, lovers of self, murder, ungodliness, plus 114 more that we do not have time to mention this morning. So have I brightened up your morning by sharing this list? Well, don't answer that. (laughs) Well, this morning we are going to explore what the Bible has determined by many to what has been determined by many biblical scholars through the centuries to be the greatest sin. And now it is not my intention to lay forth an argument regarding what is the greatest sin. Rather, my intent this morning is to make it abundantly clear that this sin is a very serious sin, and as Christians, we need to be self-aware of the damage that it can have on our walk with Jesus. Maybe first it would be helpful to quickly review what sin is. It is any thought, attitude, or action contrary to God's will and his perfect character of love. So what is the greatest sin? Well, C.S. Lewis, who is arguably the most influential Christian apologist of the 20th century in his renowned book, Mere Christianity, called Pride the Great Sin. Augustine in the 4th century and later Aquinas both taught that pride was the root of sin. And likewise, Calvin and Martin Luther and many others. Make no mistake about it, pride is a very great sin. Augustine defined pride as man's refusal to submit to God. Pride was present at the fall of Satan when he sought to escape God's authority, just as pride was present in the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 5. Thomas Aquinas said, Pride is an excessive desire for one's own excellence, which rejects surrender to God. And more recently, John Piper wrote that pride is universal. We all deal with it. And over the last few weeks, Pastor Dallas has touched on the topic of pride and sin when teaching from Nehemiah. No surprise, the Bible speaks a great deal about pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. And Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction, haughtiness before a fall. Why is pride such an important issue in the Bible? Well, pride is disobedience to God's most important command to love him above all else and love our neighbors as ourselves. 
When we sin, we turn away from God, and often we turn others away too. Now, I have used all of these scholarly references because many Christians pay little attention to pride. So I am hoping this morning to elevate in your mind how destructive the sin is, and I think the greatest ruin to a Christian's walk. And as we will unravel how this sin, which we may be completely unaware of in ourselves, how it keeps us from experiencing all that Christ has given us and inhibits our ability to fully reveal Christ in our lives. So what is pride? Pride is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own importance or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in conduct. And pride can be both glaringly obvious or deceptively sneaky. C.S. Lewis says the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Lewis said fornication, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And Lewis said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. So the reality is that pride is often subtle. So subtle that we cannot even see it in ourselves yet others do. It is very easy to be blind to this sin, which makes it even more treacherous. So this morning, we are going to explore pride and its close companion, selfishness. To be selfish is to be concerned excessively with oneself. It is one of the biggest obstacles to having the kind of relationship with God and relationship with other people that we desire. A few weeks ago, when my wife Melanie asked me what I was going to teach on this morning, I said, pride and selfishness. And she just gave me a look and said, good luck with that, LOL. Now, she didn't explain what she meant by that, and I didn't dare ask. (laughs) But full disclosure, I know this is an area that I personally need to work on. So I suppose I'm being a bit selfish in teaching on the topic of pride and selfishness. So how pathetic is that, right? But I am hopeful that the message this morning will be a blessing to each of you. My prayer is that by the end of this teaching, we will have a fresh awareness of any pride that may be lurking in our lives and an understanding of how to get rid of it so that we can enjoy all the blessings and all the promises that we have in Christ. And one more backdrop uh, that I want to share. I don't have to tell you this morning that this world is not in sync. 
You know, in my three score and 14 years, I have never seen the world suffering as it is today. When we look at the general behavior of people in the world today, we have to ask, has there ever been a time when people were so prideful, so intolerant, so unforgiving, so dishonest, so unforgiving, so unloving, so selfish, so disrespectful, and so mean-spirited? Our social media is really anti-social, and our culture is a cancel culture. Today, people come back for vacations to show pictures of their vacation, and all they show are 20 selfies. I read a recent quote that said, if selfish means doing what's best for yourself, then I'm all for it. I think appropriate mottos for our world today are, my life, my rules, or what I want is all that matters. Today, self-love is esteemed. And I have to tell you, I attended a great party last night with my three favorite friends, me, myself, and I, and we had a great time. And isn't it ironic and sad and a great example of the deplorable state our society is in today that the word pride is flaunted and celebrated in our culture and has been adopted as the theme of the LGBTQ community through Pride Day, Pride Month, Pride Flags, Pride Parades, and the widespread chronic preoccupation with self and American culture today is rooted in pride. These times align perfectly with Paul's writings in 2 Timothy 3, which read, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and they will hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Last Sunday, Pastor Dallas, teaching from Nehemiah, mentioned the persecution that some of our high school-aged children are facing at school as this world attempts to rebrand Christianity. In our world today, Christians are a target. So in the midst of all this, I think now more than at any time in my lifetime, Christians must be distinguished in our communities by our demeanor, our actions, our words, our compassion, our love for others, our generosity, and also our strength in the face of adversity. So let's take a deeper look at what C.S. Lewis had to say about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. First, Lewis says, a proud person has to be better than everyone else. How do you feel when you are snubbed or unnoticed or patronized or shown up uh, by someone else? If you're proud, then you get very upset when someone else wins. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it. 
than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And it is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Lewis said a proud person is never satisfied. A proud person will try to get more even when he already has more than he needs. Many sins such as greed and selfishness are the result of pride. Power, says Lewis, is what pride really enjoys. A self-righteous person wants to feel superior to others and power over others feeds a superiority complex. And haven't we all seen and participated in the quest for power from our political leaders who demand more and more influence and control over our lives? So the pride-fueled quest for power leads to enmity and division between people. Pride makes you God's enemy, says Lewis. Pride not only makes people enemies with each other, it also makes people enemies with God. Says Lewis, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, then Lewis says you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Lewis writes, that raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? And I am afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. And there's a term for this, it's self-righteousness. Finally, Lewis says that pride makes you vulnerable to the devil. Vices other than pride, says Lewis, come from the devil working through us in our animal nature. But pride, on the other hand, is purely spiritual and consequently far more subtle and deadly. And Lewis concludes, we can be blind to our own pride. And adding to what Lewis had to say, I couldn't leave Charles Spurgeon out of the conversation. So, what did he write about pride? He said, proud souls, go on in your proud ways, but know that your end is destruction. Climb up the ladder of your pride. You shall fall over on the other side and be dashed to pieces. Ascend the steep hill of your glory, and the higher you climb, the more terrible will be your fall. For know you this, that against none has the Lord Almighty bent his bow more often, and against none 
has he shot his arrows more furiously than against the proud and mighty man that exalts himself. So James 3.16 says, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So I asked this morning, what are we to do about our pride? How do we douse the haughtiness of pride and replace it with the glow of Christ? How does the Bible instruct us? Well, the opposite of pride is humility. And as Christians, humility is one of our key goals. Romans 12 Three says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Pride and selfishness are being concerned with one's own interest above the interest of others. However, the Bible in Philippians 2 commands us to don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your interest, but take an interest in others too. Now, our perspective on humility can be radically changed if we ponder and meditate on the greatest example of humility in history, Jesus Christ. By the very act of leaving heaven, coming to earth, and taking the form of man, he demonstrated an unfathomable humbling of himself. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus demonstrated a profound humility, saying that he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The great 19th century preacher Jonathan Edwards said about humility, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. So if humility is our goal as Christians and the opposite of pride and selfishness, then how do we acquire humility? How can we be victorious on the journey from pride to humility. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. Combating the sin of pride and selfish ambition requires genuine humility. Being humble involves having a true perspective about ourselves in relation to God. Ask yourself, how am I going to look like Jesus when I'm only looking out for myself. John Stott wrote, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. The reality is that pride is about my glory, while humility is about God's glory. Pride and selfishness inhibit us from experiencing the fullness of Christ while humility can enable us to be completely filled with the love of Christ. 
The most truthful thing that you can say to someone who is filled with pride is, there is a God and it's not you, right? Now let's now return to those Colossian verses that we read earlier to explore what we are to do on this journey from pride to humility. Beginning in Colossians 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So here we see that we are being exhorted to realize that when we accepted Christ, we died to this life. And now our new life, our real life, is hidden with Christ. Now this statement alone should have us remove any sense of pride in our own flesh. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, then he is a new creation. You see, we have a new life. And in verse 10 in Colossians, Paul continues, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So this is so key to our walk that our old man before we accepted Christ is no longer who we are. We have a new nature. And as believers, we dedicate the rest of our lives to revealing Christ in our lives. Then we are told in verse 11 that Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And then in verse 12, we are instructed how to, to rid ourselves of pride and put on the characteristics that are associated with Christ-likeness. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12, says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Now this all sounds like the opposite of pride and selfish, selfishness, doesn't it? So if this is what we desire in our new life in Christ, then why do we often struggle to live out our life this way? The reality is that that old man who was supposed to die when we accepted Christ is not dead. When we get that big promotion at work and we boast in our accomplishment, Jesus says, hello, that wasn't you, that was me. I gave you the skills and abilities to succeed. 
We win that athletic competition and we boast in our winning. And Jesus says, hello, that wasn't you, that was me. I gave you the strength and endurance to be victorious. We create an award-winning painting and we boast in the glow of our success. And Jesus says, hello, that wasn't you, that was me. I gave you that talent. We win a beauty contest and boast about the admiration of others. And Jesus says, hello, that wasn't you, that was me. I formed you in your mother's womb. Or more subtly, we notice new people in church and we fail to introduce ourselves and get to know them. You see, they just don't look like the type of people that I want to associate with. And Jesus says, hello, humble yourself with love and compassion for others. See, when we boast in ourselves, we disavow God. We elevate ourselves and neglect that he created us. So did we really give our life to Christ? All of our life? Don't we owe it all to him? You know, completing this journey from pride to humility begins with accepting, perhaps for the first time, that all we are, our talents, our skills, our parents, our gifts, our personality, were given to us by Jesus to be used for his glory. Resting in the truth that if Jesus is in me, then what justification do I have to be prideful? Colossians 2, 9 states, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And now reading from Ephesians 3, verse 17. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. And then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So the Apostle Paul here is proclaiming that in these verses that in Christ the fullness of God resides. And he states that Christ lives in us and therefore the fullness of God which resides in Christ is available to us. Now don't we all as Christians desire to experience the fullness of God in Christ? This should be our utmost goal since the minute that we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. And yet pride and selfishness are stumbling blocks to achieving this goal which we achieve through a lifelong process of sanctification. God intends us to have the fullness of Christ. So when we begin to talk about God's goal and purpose for the Christian life, we are actually talking about what Christianity is. So what is Christianity? At the root, Christianity is Christ in us. 
as stated in Colossians 1.27. So to be filled with the fullness of God means that you have surrendered all to Jesus and your life reveals the characteristics of Jesus for others to see. Author and pastor Randy Acorn wrote one of the best explanations for Christ-likeness. He said people had only to look at Jesus to know what God is like. And people today should only have to look at us to see what Jesus is like. Paul desired that very thing when he said to the Galatians, I travail until Christ be formed in you. And God doesn't want to share us with us either. Once we are saved, it isn't a little bit of God and a little bit of us. It's the fullness of God in Christ. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? That our God deems it his will to live in us. Our true identity, the one we were made for and will carry us forward into heaven is based on who we are in Christ in Christ, we are made holy. So let's consider this truth in light of pride and selfishness, which we have talked about this morning and which is associated with what you might term our old earthen vessel. Well, God wants to empty that earthen vessel, which is us, so that the treasure, which is Jesus, can fill us. God wants each of us to have the fullness of his son. We actually receive the fullness of Christ when we receive Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Now, I believe that many Christians have the wrong perspective when they say, I want to act or be more like Christ. It isn't that that is not a wonderful goal, yet in our old flesh we will never reach that goal. You see, the perspective isn't that we try to act like Christ. We have already settled that Christ is fully in us. The struggle we have is not acting more like Christ. It is getting rid of who we were before we gave our life to Christ so that more and more of Christ can be revealed within us. Christ is there fully, not an arm and a leg, but all of him. Yet our old man, our fleshly desires, our worldly pursuits, our pride, our selfishness, they act as veils to prevent the fullness of Christ from being experienced in our lives and seen by others. The moment Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, the veil in the temple in Jerusalem that separated the Holy of Holies from all the other rooms was torn from the top to the bottom. And this tearing symbolized that there was no longer a separation between God and man. It symbolized that now God was available to man in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And your body is now a temple where Jesus resides. 
Yet as Christians, our pride and selfishness often act as that veil that continues to separate us from Jesus. So the path to becoming more like Christ is humbling ourselves and removing any veils that we are protecting, essentially shedding all the old trappings of our old self before we accepted Christ, surrendering once and for all that old man, essentially getting out of Jesus' way so that his fullness can be revealed in our lives. God's desire is to make you his holy home and to fill you with all the fullness of himself. When I accept Christ, I do not become merely a forgiven old creation. God is not fixing the old creation. No, I become a new creation. I recently read a story having to do with the Reformation hero, Martin Luther. And one day, Luther answered a knock on his door. Does Dr. Martin Luther live here? No, Luther responded. He died. Christ lives here now. You know, in Matthew 10, verse 38, Jesus said, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, when Jesus says to take up our cross, what is he saying? What did Jesus give up on the cross for our sakes? He gave up his life, didn't he? And when he says take up your cross, he is saying that to follow him, we too must nail our old man, our earthly desires, our worldly passions, our pride, our selfishness to our cross. Anything about our lives that is apart from God all has to die, and then we can follow Jesus. Empty the earthen vessel so that Christ's fullness can be revealed. Ask yourself, am I still hanging on to any parts of my old life? Galatians 2.20 teaches us that living by faith in the Son of God means you no longer live. But Jesus lives in you, and you will need to learn to leave yourself behind. As born-again Christians, we pray daily and maybe many times during the day to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet the Spirit is limited to the degree we have emptied ourselves to be filled. If we are holding on to some sinful behavior or idolizing something in our life above God, such as money or power, possessions, or for prideful, and selfish, then we cannot expect the Holy Spirit to completely fill us. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. We must pray for the Spirit to reveal these thoughts and actions to us, and then we repent and remove these hindrances. You know, I've come to realize that being a Christian is completely opposed to the world and is paradoxical. Such as, 
I lose joy when I seek my own glory. I experience joy when I seek God's glory. Selflessness is the best thing that I can do for myself. I must decrease so that Christ can increase. To live, I must die. To be strong, I must be weak. It is not in my self-interest to be a selfish person. When I focus on myself, my life lacks meaning. When I focus on others, my life has purpose. And finally, when I am humble, then I am exalted. So we cannot be full of Christ if we are full of ourselves. And these paradoxes reveal that the only way to joy and peace and fulfillment is allowing Jesus to be in control of our lives. Now we began this morning considering the sin of pride and selfishness and these are thoughts and behaviors that are remaining from our old life before Christ. My intent has not been to have anyone feel guilty, but to encourage everyone to seek to know and experience the fullness of God in their lives. We then considered scripture that informs us that Christ lives in us and the fullness of Christ is available to us. Are you on the journey from pride or some other sin to surrender and humility? While it is easy to see pride in others, as C.S. Lewis said, it is very difficult to see it in ourselves. We must reflect on what parts of the old man are hindering the revealing of the fullness of Christ in our lives. Because pride is so tricky to recognize, we should earnestly seek God and seek God in prayer and ask him to reveal to us any sinful pride in our lives so we can repent. On the journey from pride to humility, we must humbly surrender all to Jesus by developing the discipline to take inventory of our lives, to examine ourselves, to acknowledge where sin exists in our life, and then pray for Christ through his strength to empty the earthen, earthen vessel so that all the fullness of Christ will fill us and will be revealed in our lives. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So let's close by hearing from Charles Spurgeon again and what he said about humility. Humility is to feel that we have no power over ourselves, but that it all comes from God. Humility is to lean on Jesus, to believe that he has trod the winepress alone to lie on his bosom and slumber sweetly there. It is to exalt Jesus and think less than nothing 
of ourselves. It is, in fact, to annihilate self and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as all in all. And as truly as ever the Lord has humbled you, he will exalt you. So humility shows up when I accept the truth that I am nothing without what God has done. Let's pray. Father God, we just humbly come before you this morning. In you alone, Father, we take pride. We praise you for giving us an example in Christ to follow in a way through him to submit our prideful ways to you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray your truth, Father, over our lives today. Hold us accountable and lead us to learn from and depend on you daily. Protect us from the destructive ramifications of pride, Father. We desire to be completely filled with your love. May we boast only in what you are doing in our redeemed lives. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time this morning, Father. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we will be taking uh, communion this morning. And we'll have three songs from the worship uh, team. And then uh, the, while the songs are, are being sung, then uh, we'll pass out the elements. And then we will take communion together. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are welcome to take communion with us this morning. Thank you. Try 
So in taking communion, we first look back. In remembrance of Christ, we look back to the cross, what Jesus accomplished for us, and we are reminded of his love. We also look ahead, thinking of Jesus coming again when he comes as conquering king. And we are to look within. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 and 28, it reads, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So we are to examine ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to show us any areas of our lives that may not be pleasing to God. And we are to repent of these sins. So this morning, let us partake of communion reverently and joyfully. For once, we were slaves to sin. And now we are free through the blood of Christ. So let us lift the bread and bow our heads and let's take just a moment to examine ourselves. Reading from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Let's take the bread. Now, let's lift the cup. Verse 25 reads, In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's drink the cup. And now let's pray. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. 
The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we're dismissed, I want to just thank Juliana for joining our worship this morning. Wasn't her cello beautiful? And we hope to see her again. So thank you all and have a blessed day. Thank you.